Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name is Neil Headley. A couple bits and pieces to get out of the way before we introduce you to this week's guest. First of all, thank you to Snooze Button listeners who've been passing the word, sharing links to what we're doing. Much appreciated. Thank you for doing it. Special thanks as well to our bedheads who chip in a buck or two every month at patreon.com slash the snooze button. You're helping to keep the lights on, as it were, and we're grateful for that. Still one more week to go in the contest that could win you a pair of books when we make the draw on the weekend. One copy of Dr. Guy Leschziner's The Nocturnal Brain, which features amazing stories about the things that happen north of your neck while you're asleep and some of the more extraordinary stories of how that wiring sometimes goes sideways. Also, a copy of Yoga for the Inflexible Male by our friend Roy Parvin, writing as Yoga Matt. Both men have been previous guests on this show, and their stories are fascinating. The deadline for entries, midnight this Friday, December the 20th. So for details, go to thesnoozebutton.com slash contests. To enter the contest, it is as easy as supplying your email address, although there are ways you can go about getting bonus entries, and the details are waiting for you there on our website. I want to introduce you to this week's guest. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, the author of Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. She has more degrees than a thermometer, uh, including from places like Yale and Harvard and MIT. She is a U.S. Army veteran. She uh, put together a a program called Mindfulness-Based Mind Fitness Training that's been taught to all kinds of people in both civilian and military high-stress environments. Uh, Her story is incredible, and we're going to get into detail on that. We're going to talk about the intersection, if you will, of stress and sleep, of PTSD and sleep, of PTSD and sleep issues like the one that was uh, the biggest factor in my sleeplessness, periodic limb movement disorder, all kinds of ground to cover with Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. So here she is. Well, as a fellow trauma magnet, I'm very excited to get you on the show, Liz. And I want to start with the same question that regardless of who you are or what your station is in life, everybody gets the same first question on the show. How did you sleep last night? I actually slept remarkably well last night. Um, I got slightly less than I wanted. I only got seven hours and 45 minutes. I'm much, much happier when my body gets eight and a half or nine especially in the winter, but the seven and three quarters I got were, were solid. How was your wow. sleep last night? Yeah. Oh God, it was terrible. Um, so here's the path that I'm on and, and it will instantly become clear to you why you were a person I absolutely had to talk to. So I have been doing morning television and radio for about 30 years, which means that the last time I really got a good night's sleep was about 1989. Last night was a typical night for me in that according to my Fitbit, you know, which is the best of the have it at home sleep trackers that's really available to us, I got about five hours of sleep, about 13 minutes of which uh, my Fitbit says was deep sleep. About an hour of it was REM sleep and the rest of it was just kind of varying stages of wakefulness or really, really light sleep, which is pretty standard for me. Over the last several years, the first time I went to a sleep lab, which was about three or four months ago now, I was diagnosed with restless leg syndrome and I had a periodic limb movement index of 82. So I was thrashing around in my sleep all night for, it was about every 40 to 45 seconds all night long. 
went on medication for the restless leg and the periodic limb movement, and I'm at least not now taking two or three hours to fall asleep. Now I'm, I'm trying to work on the deep sleep part of my life. But there are a hundred reasons why Widen the Window jumped out at me. I, before we get into, you know, sort of the selfish case for being interested in your book, I want to get into a little detail with you on where the book came from. What's the genesis of Widen the Window to even begin with? That's a great question, Neil. This book, you know, I've had people say to me that we often want to research what we need to know. And in my case, this book was a labor of love in terms of healing my own mind and body. I come from a long family lineage of warriors. And with that comes a long lineage of intergenerational trauma. And I had early life experiences that were traumatic and stressful. I experienced shock trauma events, um, sexual violence, and a near-death experience when I was deployed in the military to Bosnia and a sexual harassment claim that required being a whistleblower and just kind of chronic, ongoing stress and trauma from which I never recovered. And my mind and body were stuck on high for decades. And one of the classic ways that stuck on high shows up for us when we're dysregulated in that way is insomnia. And so I spent probably... 20 years of my life where I was sleeping somewhere between two to four hours a night. And, you know, the costs on your body and on your mind from that kind of sleep deprivation is immense. And um, my system began to show all kinds of symptoms. I, I had developed asthma, I had really bad respiratory problems, and I had Lyme and didn't know it. And eventually I lost my eyesight. <laughs> and that was my wake up call. When you can't see as a professor, you're like, okay, time to reevaluate and do something different. Um, and so I, um, you know, I had already been doing some talk therapy and not finding a lot of help from that. And we can talk a little bit later on about why that might be the case when someone's really dysregulated. But uh, I found mindfulness meditation. I did some work um, with some body-based trauma techniques and eventually got certified in one of those techniques myself. I developed a resilience program um, that uh, we offered to, initially we offered to military, um, active duty troops that were preparing for combat deployment. And we did four different neuroscience studies to test the effectiveness of this resilience program. And I've now taught it in lots of other ways. And this book is kind of an outgrowth of my own life experiences with stress and trauma and resilience. And then the experiences of all the men and women I've trained in a wide range of high stress situations, military, civilian, and even on campus um, at Georgetown. Before I go another second, I need to say thank you for your service. It's something that I has become a regular part of my life, has become something that I taught my daughter since she was old enough to speak. Uh, it became something that became a part of my regular experience in the literal aftermath of 9-11 when I was walking around lower Manhattan the following weekend 
and seeing police officers and first responders and members of the military on the streets of New York and watching people walk up and hug cops and hug firefighters and hug men and women in uniform. And from that day forward, I'm that annoying guy at the gas station that if I see somebody in uniform, I will pull over, get out of the car just to walk over and say to them, thank you for your service. And it's something that I think every single person on the planet should do every single day as an expression of gratitude. So before I go any further, thank you again for that. Uh, I am really blessed that I had the opportunity to serve. And those are some of the most formative uh, years of my life. Challenging, but I also learned a tremendous amount. Um, the, the kind of camaraderie and the kinds of committed people that you have a chance to work with is, is really special. And so when I have watched so many um, thousands of men and women coming home from deployments um, and seeing some of the suffering that they're going through with the dysregulation in their own minds and bodies after being on in those really challenging situations. Um, I felt compelled to be able to offer some of what I'd learned on my own journey and share it with them. So as it relates to sleep deprivation and the impact that that has on people, and we'll get further into the other aspects of widen the window as the conversation continues, but I want to focus for a second on sleep deprivation because people who have become regular listeners uh, to this podcast become aware of an interview we did in the second episode ever, which was with Dr. Adrian Owen, world-class neuroscientist. And we talked about this journey that I'm on to try and find better quality sleep as having been inspired by having a now 17-month-old daughter and having read all of these scary studies that are suggesting that uh, sleep deprivation puts you on a collision course with Alzheimer's and all these different things. But there was a term in there that I was completely ignorant as to its meaning until I talked to Dr. Owen, cognitive decline, which I had come to associate as basically being another way of saying Alzheimer's or memory loss or something like that. And one of the things that Dr. Owen made crystal clear, and I talk to people a lot about it now, is that cognitive decline isn't necessarily Alzheimer's. It's more about the decisions that you make, the 100 or 200 little decisions that you make every single day and how a, a chronic lack of sleep has massive impact on those decisions. Absolutely. Chronic sleep deprivation is a form of chronic stress arousal. And whenever we are in a state of chronic stress arousal, our thinking brain functions, our executive functioning, our attention, our short and long-term memory, our ability to access facts and, and employ them, our ability to see situations clearly, our ability to make decisions, our ability to problem solve, our ability to connect with other people, all of these things are controlled by thinking brain functions. And all of those functions are degraded when we have had chronic sleep deprivation. And for me, um, when I was doing some of the research about sleep for the empirical, you know, experimental research about sleep for the book, for the chapter that talks most about this. The finding that was most interesting to me was the fact that in several different experimental studies, you know, they put people into different amounts of sleep restriction. You know, they were allowed to sleep three hours a night or four hours or five or six or seven or eight or nine. And the only groups 
um, that did not see any declines in their thinking brain functions were the people that were consistently getting allowed to sleep eight or nine hours a night. Everyone else saw declines. Um, and people who were having just being asked to sleep the six, the eight hours, I'm sorry, the six hours a night, um, which is what many Americans and and Westerners and people on the planet get. Six hours is for many people considered a full night's sleep. But when that is sustained night after night, after two weeks of that, their cognitive performance was impaired to the level of people who were at a legally drunk level in terms of their performance on these different cognitive measures. Um, and the piece that was most interesting for me about that was they asked them at the same time, do you think your lack of sleep is affecting your performance? Every single one of them said no. So it isn't just that our thinking brain functions have declined. It's also that we're oblivious to how much the sleep deprivation is affecting our thinking brain functions and our performance. So it becomes a bit of a vicious circle. We don't realize how compromised our attention and memory and um, decision-making is. And so we're not getting enough sleep. And then as you put it, we're making all of these choices day in and day out, moment by moment, that are being very affected by that lack of sleep. It hurts our willpower. You know, it affects a lot of other things I'm sure we can talk about. But yes, it's, um, it's global in its effects. I identified you right out of the gate with a phrase that you use in the book, trauma magnet, and also applied that term to myself. It's interesting in that I never even entertained the thought that PTSD was something that happened to people who were not first responders or active duty military or those sorts of things. So when I sat down in an office in 2007 and was labeled, for want of a different term from yours, uh, a trauma magnet because I was sitting across from a man who had an eight and a half by 14 legal pad in his hand. And by the time he had gotten to page seven in his notes of things that he considered qualifying as trauma from my life, uh, he said, okay, I don't need to take any further notes. It's time to actually begin to address it. But congratulations, you've joined the PTSD club. For me, it was interesting to find, and I just discovered this maybe two months ago, that perhaps the PTSD, which relates back to a sexual abuse incident, actually a series of sexual abuse incidents that happened to me when I was six years old, it has been presented to me that perhaps my sleep difficulties have been a direct result of that experience because there may still be, even to this day, a lingering association in my brain that bed is not a safe place. Yes, um, I absolutely agree with that hypothesis, Neil. Um, it is fascinating how many of our symptoms as adults, which we look to our, either our immediate life experience, like what's going on day to day right now, or we might remember some relatively recent, like in the last decade, big event, you know, like 9-11 or some other big traumatic event. And we think that our dysregulation and the symptoms of that dysregulation must stem from that. When actually our survival brain, which is the part of the brain that controls whether we are experiencing stress or trauma, and also controls whether or not we're having a full recovery after that stress and trauma. 
survival brain is picking things up from the, you know, the moment that we're born and it is storing them in implicit memory outside of our conscious awareness. And it is driving uh, all kinds of associations and all kinds of behavioral patterns in response that we're usually completely oblivious to because it's, it's an unconscious process. I think it's absolutely very likely that your survival brain links still now in this very globalized way, being in bed with being in a potentially dangerous situation. And so I'm sure that your survival brain could benefit from some additional work to help recover from that set of experiences. And in the process, um, finish resolving that unresolved memory capsule, you know, that physical location and that that body posture, I'm sure, is potentially linked for your survival brain to 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 danger, and then it's going to turn stress on, and that's going to make sleep impossible. Because sleep's only possible when the survival brain feels safe. So here's why. Among it's one of a hundred reasons why your book is fascinating to me. I went through in 2007 when I was diagnosed. I went through EMDR, which I'm sure <laughs> you're familiar with. There are people who, and I was among them, um, the first time you go for EMDR, you believe that you are sitting in the middle of the biggest quackery ever invented because you you look at a person who is asking you about your traumas and then they move their finger about in front of your face and then you have the same conversation over again and rinse, repeat, etc. And you think to yourself, what on earth am I doing here until – my experience was about halfway in to that first session where you, for some reason, inexplicably find yourself weeping, having been able to finally reframe, reprioritize, reexamine some particular trauma that has had a grip on you for your entire life, as it was in my case, and be able to look at it in a completely different way for the first time that actually made those incidents even bearable to think about. Um, for people who don't know about what EMDR is, can you elucidate a little bit and maybe help me figure out if EMDR covered off most of what happened to me in terms of dealing with my traumas, if there's still residual stuff left over that, as I say, is apparently up until a couple of months ago still causing this periodic limb movement disorder, what do I do to fill in the gaps that the EMDR didn't cover? That might be a huge question, but I felt like it was – and again, a lot, of this, a lot of this conversation is going to be based completely in me being selfish, um, but I can't be the only person that's in this scenario. The difference between – I'm going to back up a little bit because that's such a big question that I need to give a little bit more science background to have my answer make some sense, if that's okay. Absolutely. <laughs> the survival brain – turns on stress arousal anytime it perceives us to be in a threatening or challenging situation. And if it also perceives us to be powerless, helpless, or lacking control while we're in that threatening or challenging situation, then it turns on trauma. Trauma is on the spectrum with stress, but it happens when we're feeling powerless or lacking in control. And one of the most important things about trauma for the survival brain is that the implicit memory system that I was talking about a little while ago, that becomes corrupted. And because um, 
During trauma, we are at the highest levels of stress arousal, which means our thinking brain functions are most compromised. It's why during traumatic events, we often have fragmented or incomplete or contradictory memories, conscious memories, because the thinking brain is so much offline. At the same time, the survival brain has learned some really important takeaways from that event, and it now is going to be generalizing from that experience into the future. And one of the most important things it learned is that we didn't really successfully um, defend ourselves from whatever it was that caused that trauma. So the implicit memory then stores learning from these traumatic events differently than it stores learning after times when we were successful from its perspective in defending ourselves. And that makes the traumatic events get remembered in ways that are, um, the survival brain perceives then that the event never completed. So for the survival brain, that trauma is still ongoing. And it holds all of the things it encoded during that event as um, a memory capsule. Robert Scare was the first one to talk about that term, and I use it as well. And the memory capsule is all of the physical sensations and emotions and sights and sounds and smells and things that we picked up in the body postures, any thoughts we had in that time. They're all stored together in this memory capsule. And then when the traumatized survival brain has anything that is triggered into that memory capsule, it pops it back as if the trauma is still ongoing right now. Of course, the thinking brain has no idea what's going on with any of this because the thinking brain was not aware of that going on. And so often we can pop into one of these unresolved memory capsules and have no idea why our mind and body is behaving the way it does. Because these memory capsules are stored there, the thinking brain usually doesn't understand it. And so when we start having symptoms, when we start having problems like sleep problems, or we might have panic attacks, or we might start having physical symptoms, getting sick, we don't know why. But for the survival brain, there is some commonality to whatever happened back during the original trauma that hasn't been healed yet. So EMDR is one way, one of different ways to go in to kind of bypass the thinking brain and go directly to the survival brain to trigger one of those implicit memory capsules that are not resolved, and then to help the, the survival brain recover from it. Because any lack of recovery that has to have is still, it's kind of perpetuating that memory capsule. For me, EMDR was helpful. It was one of many techniques I tried. For me, the, the technique that worked even better was some of these body-based trauma therapies. Uh, and I ended up getting trained in one, perhaps the best known is called somatic experiencing. Sensory, uh, sensory psychomotor therapy is another one. Um, and these therapies, the therapist, the person who is the practitioner, sits and watches your mind and body. Um, you have one of these memory capsules triggered, your survival brain turns on a new wave of stress activation that might show up in your body posture. It might show up in your rapid heart rate, or there's a whole list of ways that stress activation shows up. And the therapist helps to guide your active attention in ways that help the survival brain to complete that cycle of activation and discharge it. 
And the more times that that happens, the more that the survival brain begins to repair its corrupted implicit memory because the survival brain finally begins to get the message that that thing was in the past. It isn't still ongoing. It repairs that corrupted understanding and it helps it finally be over it in some ways. It helps it finally realize that's in the past. It's not still happening today. So EMDR helped you get, make some progress with that. And there are other things that can help make progress with that too. In fact, when you, once you begin to understand kind of the way that the survival brain works and where you direct your attention and how that helps the survival brain to complete this recovery process, you can do it without even a therapeutic intervention. You can do it for yourself. And that's what I developed for, uh, for my resilience program, mindfulness-based mind fitness training. And that's also what I explain how to do in the third part of widen the window. So I'll give you an example of, of what EMDR did for my case, but where I look at, for example, something like MFIT. And I think that maybe that's the next avenue I need to pursue because here's, here's one of the great examples aside from the things that happened when I was six. Um, fast forward. Uh, I was in high school, maybe grade, maybe 10th grade. I'm at a pool party and I can't swim a lick. I'm, I'm, you know, there are boulders that can swim better than I can. I am at a pool party with a bunch of friends. One of the guys from the football team, because I was always the, also the class clown. One of the guys from the football team picks me up, throws me into the pool. Hilarity ensues because I'm the class clown and everybody uh, makes the assumption that everything I'm doing as I'm flailing about and splashing about in the water is just me clowning around some more. As I that start to sink. Fine. Yeah. So as I start to sink to the bottom of the pool, one of my very clearest memories from my teenage years is the moment where I thought to myself, I am about to die and they're all laughing. And so my brain and tell me if, if I'm way out on, on the wrong course here, but my understanding of what happened is that in that moment, my brain made the connection between me suffering and other people enjoying watching me suffer. And so as a result, I went for at least three decades never being able to trust a single person because I had this belief in, as you call it, my survival brain, this memory capsule, where there was a connection where I felt like if ever push came to shove, I would not be able to count on you because if there were ever actual suffering, you'd think it was hilarious and you would take joy in my pain. I do think that it sounds very much like that belief got highly coupled with that particular traumatic event. And just to really clarify how traumatic that event is, you were not able to breathe. So for your survival brain, you were completely helpless and your system was starting to shut down to prepare for death and to have that level of stress activation and to have that kind of dismissal and disregard by other humans around you. Of course, that is going to condition a very, very, very deep sense of aloneness and lack of support and distrust from others and for others. That is, that's a very, that's a very deep conditioning that your survival brain, I'm sure, still carries at different levels. And you know, the way to recover from that is to begin to recognize that 
when you are in contact with others and you're about to trust someone, your survival brain is going to find that dangerous, right? And so when you're about to reveal yourself or get connected to someone or place your trust in them, that's going to trigger stress arousal for your survival brain. And if they don't reciprocate with some kind of deep connection to help begin to show your survival brain, no, that was not like what it learned was not the actual truth. It's only going to keep reifying that. So yeah, it sounds, Neil, like you've had a tremendous number of events that have set your survival brain on a course. No wonder it doesn't want to go to sleep. No wonder it feels like it needs to stay awake all the time. It's constantly on alert. If there's ever like a, you know, if you put out a second edition of Widen the Window at some point down the road, we should sit and chat. Um, tell me, though, if I mean, is and there are numerous pathways and, and things in the book for helping people deal with stress and trauma and all of those things. I wonder, though, as it relates to, for example, survival brain, these memory capsules, all of that, is if I could work on my sleep. If I could get better quality sleep, more restorative sleep, my my N3, my deep sleep uh, as a result of this medication that I'm on has skyrocketed all the way from 1% N3 sleep to 7%. Yay, which means I'm still at a at a third of where someone my age really wants to be in terms of being able to have, for example, your glymphatic system kick in and all of these other things. But would improving my sleep help my survival brain let go of some of these things? It's a very interesting, it can be a vicious cycle or a virtuous cycle. Because when we are dysregulated, from lack of recovery from chronic stress and trauma, sleep is one of the first ways that that dysregulation shows up. And then we begin to develop, you know, kind of aversion to trying to go to bed. Like I've worked with many, I mean, sleep, sleep problems is one of the most common problems among the men and women in high stress professions that I've trained. And what I've noticed with them, and I knew with myself when my insomnia was so bad, I would dread getting in bed because I didn't want to lie there and not fall asleep. And so it became like my behavior choices fed into not getting enough sleep, not getting enough sleep made my survival brain that much more hair trigger because when we don't get enough sleep, the survival brain is even more anxious, even jumpier. And there's ways that the brain begins to rewire to make that more likely so that the, that the survival brain will turn stress on faster. We don't have the thinking brain to help downregulate it. So that becomes just one vicious, vicious cycle. If we can interrupt it, though, and we can start getting quality sleep, the survival brain does much of the recovery functions while we are sleeping. That's when so much of the reduction of chronic inflammation happens. That's when we prune synapses. That's when we do some of those long-term tissue repair pieces. That's when we build some of the biomarkers that are for resilience, like IGF-1, which is, you know, linked to better immunity, like some of these things don't happen unless we're getting good sleep. And then when we start on that virtuous cycle, it, it kind of feeds on itself and we become more and more resilient. So finding ways to get better sleep matters. Um, and a couple really concrete things to do. If you have not been getting enough physical exercise and enough active daylight during the day, 
Um, time outside in nature, time getting physical exercise helps to expend some of those stress hormones and helps to reset the circadian rhythm so that we can get better sleep. That's one very easy thing we can do. We need to develop a strong sleep hygiene in terms of, you know, we don't, it's best when we don't eat a whole lot of very heavy food or lots of sugar or lots of alcohol at bedtime. Those things might make us sleepy immediately, but then it's actually our body has to stay awake so much to kind of help digest. And for many of us, I know when I hit middle age, more than half a glass of wine after six o'clock, man, I, I would start popping up in, in the middle of the night because it just, it really disrupted my sleep. And I know it's done that with other people too. So being careful of when we eat and what we eat so that we help set our body in a way that it wants to go to sleep. And then being really good about getting away from the environmental things that are going to amp the survival brain up. So we don't want to have a big argument with someone right before bedtime. That is not a good way to help set the survival brain onto a course for sleep. Likewise, you, you, we really don't want to have access to electronics. The electromagnetic spectrum and blue light are very activating for the survival brain. They also suppress uh, melatonin production, which is one of the important hormones for helping support us getting good sleep. So having a really good sleep hygiene schedule can be very helpful. Um, for me in the winter, one of my go-to things um, for my evening routine, I like to take a really hot bath with um, Epsom salts and some lavender essential oil. I get in the tub, it's nice and warm. I feel my the pressure of the back of my body on the bottom of the tub. That just drawing my attention to the back of my body, you know, feeling weighted in the tub, it it cues the survival brain towards a sense of feeling grounded and stable. That helps the survival brain recover. And then I get out of the tub, I'm nice and toasty, I do a little bit of yoga, I climb in bed. By the time I am under the covers, my eyes are really heavy. And I can go right to sleep. But I do at least an hour, no electronics of any kind, at least an hour before I get in bed. Um, and on the nights when I have had to avoid that, I don't sleep as well. I just know that about myself. It's kind of, it's lawful. It's, it's the way that our minds and bodies work. Um, and so making some choices like that can be helpful. But, you know, in my own experience, my sleep didn't begin to get regulated in a really good way until I had done a fair amount of healing of some of this prior chronic stress and trauma. And um, before I had done a lot of acupuncture, those two things together sort of helped set my system to a new baseline. And then with some of these behavioral choices, it really helped my system start to, to move in that direction. In MFIT, uh, we have an exercise, it's called 10 points of movement. Um, and it helps to set the body for um, uh, restful sleep. And for some of the men and women I've trained who used to be like I was when I was on active duty, two to four hours a night, every night, um, after doing this exercise, they were able to sleep through the night for the first time, some of them in, a, in the case of a decade. Um, so it can be very helpful knowing where to direct our attention and to know that wherever we're directing our attention is going to have effects on how our survival brain is perceiving our current situation. So as much as possible, directing it so that it can feel safe. I'm glad that you shared your go-to in particular because 
you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm finding as I'm on this journey to kind of improve the quality of my sleep and the quantity of my sleep is that there are so many different for lack of a better term, I'll call them hacks that are out there. <laughs> and and the place where the hacks seem to show up overwhelmingly is on the internet. If you're in any of these groups where people talk about insomnia or sleep deprivation or any of that, and you'll hear about people talking about how they, oh, you know, three or four glasses of wine helps knock me out. And then they're questioning why their quality of sleep was terrible. And then there are people who were talking about, well, I need to take 25 milligrams of melatonin and they're wondering why that only worked for a couple of weeks before they had to increase the dosage and all these different things. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife is a big fan of meditation for sleep and, and we use you know, the app for that that is from a friend of yours, uh, Dan Harris uh, and the 10% yeah. Happier app, uh, which is actually where I first became aware of you. Um, Dan is going to be a guest on this show someday. He just doesn't know it yet uh, and, and has no idea that I even exist, but someday he will be on the show to talk about meditation and sleep. So if I'm looking at MFIT and I think to myself, this sounds like this is exactly what I need, but because honestly, Liz, I only get to Virginia about once a year and I don't have a trip to Virginia coming up again until uh, May of 2020. So what are my options for MFIT if I'm not geographically close to you? Well, um, we will travel to train large groups and have done that. Um, I'm, I have a busy schedule and do that between my Georgetown teaching obligations and we're always happy to schedule that. But um, I am very excited to be able to tell you that we are in the midst of filming for an online version of MFIT that will be available worldwide. Um, be filming it in January. I'm working with Sounds True, and it will be available, edited out, etc., probably by late summer or early fall at the latest. So anyone anywhere on the planet could have a chance to do it, you know, on their own computer or their own mobile device. Um, between now and then, because I know late summer, uh, early fall of 2020 is still a while off. Um, the first exercise in the MFIT sequence is available to download for free on my website. Uh, it's called the contact points exercise and contact points exercise helps you learn to train your attention to the sensations of contact between your body and your surroundings. So you can do contact points standing up, like when you're waiting somewhere, you feel your feet on the floor, you can do it sitting in a chair, feel your butt and the backs of your legs in the chair. And many, many, many people I've trained use contact points to help themselves fall asleep. When you lie down in the bed, you feel the weight of your body, you know, in contact with the bed. And if your mind wanders off, you keep coming back to that. That sensation of groundedness and stability helps cue the survival brain to turn on recovery, to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's what you need turned on to be able to get restful sleep. So many other avenues to go down here. Uh, but I think the best thing I can do at this point is recommend uh, wholeheartedly and without reservation that people find themselves a copy of Widen the Window, which... I presume, is available at wherever fine quality books are sold. <laughs> Absolutely is. Um, and if you want to, the instructions for contact points are in the book. But if you want to also have the audio recording to you know, use as guided instruction, you can download that at my website, um, elizabeth-stanley.com. 
I feel like you and I should probably sit down again if you've got the time when the video is all done toward the end of the summer and we're ready to talk about what people can do with MFIT on a, on a global basis and how it can benefit everybody's lives because this, even, even just talking about it, feels like a huge eye-opening experience for me and I assume for a ton of others as well. So thank you for the time. Thank you, Neil. I'd love to come back and talk about it again when we get closer to launching the online version of the course. But in the meantime, this was such a pleasure to spend time with you today. There you go, Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. Again, the book is called Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. A link to the book is in the show notes um, and, and links to everything else you could possibly want to know about Liz waiting for you in the show notes as well and on our website at thesnoozebutton.com slash podcast. A terrific episode coming on next week's show as well. We'll fill you in more about that on our Twitter account. If you want to follow us on social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or our recently resurrected Instagram feed, the handle is the same in all three places. It's get your snooze on. So it's twitter.com slash get your snooze on and so on. Uh, Thanks for being here. Until next Monday, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 